Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is engineer, studio owner, and podcaster, Lidge Shaw. First of all, Spotify was hit by a big scam recently, or actually the big scam was discovered recently. That's a better way to put it. I wrote about this in my Music 3.0 blog, but I thought it's interesting enough to actually go over here one more time. Now, this was based around playlists, and as we all know, playlists are really important these days. And there was a couple of playlists, but one in particular called Soulful Music that hit number 11 in the U.S. In other words, of all of the Spotify playlists, this was number 11, and it hit number 35 on their global list. Now, how they determine these lists is all based on the revenue that they generate, or basically the number of plays when it comes down to it. So a playlist has to really generate a lot of plays to rank this high. Well, there was a major label exec who was curious about this and looked into soulful music, the playlist, and found out that the playlist consisted of 467 songs. That's a huge number because usually a playlist may go 50 at the most. They don't go very high. This had 467 songs and they each averaged 47 seconds. So in other words, these were a whole bunch of really short songs and they were all by obscure artists that no one ever heard of. Now, here's the thing. In order for a stream to be listed as a play so the artist will get revenue from it, it has to be played for at least 30 seconds. So this write-off looked very suspicious. And then delving into it, there was only 1,700 followers on the playlist, which is not that many for a top 100 playlist. And looking even further into it, they discovered that there was only 1,200 monthly listeners on average. So there was definitely something going on here that was not right. So the assumption here was that these 1,200 were basically fake accounts. You figured that at 10 bucks a month, this costs like 12 grand per month to get going. But that being said, it generated a whole lot more because these playlists were played continuously by a bot for a month. 24-7 they were going and randomly selecting a song on the playlist playing for 30 seconds and then skipping and moving on. So this generated 103 million plays. And when you figure out what Spotify was paying for each play, which is about 0.004 at the very, very lowest, that comes out to about $415,000 a month, at least. So this went on for about four months before it was finally noticed. And the only way it was noticed was it became too successful. If this playlist didn't hit the top 100, no one would ever have known. It still would have generated a lot of cash and would have went on for a long time. Now, Spotify then looked into it and got rid of all of the artists and all the accounts that appeared to be fake. Now, the interesting thing about all this is it appears to be legal. There was nothing illegal about the way this was set up. It just kind of violated the spirit of how all this is done. Spotify has since taken steps to make sure that doesn't happen again, but we'll see. People keep on coming up with creative ideas of gaming the system with Spotify, and I'm sure it'll happen again. If you have any questions or comments, 
Send her questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Check out my Hitmakers Club for access to the Private Mixers Facebook group, monthly deconstructed hits, mixing workshop, and Q&A webinars. And for a short time, access to my core training module bonus. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, it's a fact of life that people are using amplifier simulators more and more in lieu of real amplifiers. And the reason why is they're simple and cheaper than getting a great sounding amp. And they're a lot more versatile. And also, the fact of the matter is, you can use them in your bedroom where you can't with an amplifier. So more and more people are using these, more and more players are switching over and even taking them on the road. And there was an article recently about Metallica of all people that were using simulators on the road instead of marshals or boogies like they had in the past. So this is something that's really catching on. Now, if you're one of those that uses an amp sim a lot, there's a number of things that you can do to get the most out of it. The very first thing is use a short cable. So in other words, the shorter the cable into your interface, the better, because you'll pick up the least amount of noise. And noise is a big thing, so the second thing is, you want to make sure that you find that noise sweet spot, or actually the least amount of noise. So the pickup combination and moving around until you find that sweet spot is really important. The next thing is amp sims, and this is all of them, they seem to like a hot signal. So the hotter the signal, usually the better it's going to sound. Now, I've found that if you add a limiter, it also helps. And if you cut off a dB or two of the peaks before it hits the amp sim, then it's actually going to respond a little bit better. And I think you're going to like the sound a little bit more sustained. It also helps if you EQ the signal going into the amp sim. And that means rolling off some of the bottom, rolling off some of the top. What you'll find is a much smoother sound as a result. And then next is if there's oversampling available, that's what you should use. Now, some amp sims will use the extra horsepower that oversampling provides in order to make everything sound better. Now, you can't use many of them when you do this because it's really going to take a lot of horsepower. That being said, it's worth it because the sound is a whole lot better. So if your amp sim does provide that option, that's something you should take. The next thing is post-EQ. Sometimes an amp sim, especially the distorted ones, will actually output something that will give you a weird frequency bump. And it's not always appropriate. So be prepared to go in there and notch out a frequency band to make things a little bit smoother. And finally, in order to make an amp sim really work, a lot of them have built-in effects, but many don't. So in order to make it sound a whole lot more real, the best thing to do is add some sort of a room simulator. And if you don't have a convolution type reverb, which tend to work the best in these cases, one of the things that you can do is just use a very, very short delay. And the best way is 25 milliseconds on the left and 50 milliseconds on the right, or some combination of that, which gives you this magic type of room sound without actually doing a whole lot. This has been used going way, way back. It's kind of a special setting that everybody used to use on SPX 90s, as I recall, especially in the 80s. It was kind of a studio trick. 
25 on the left, 50 on the right, and that gave you this room sound that was very, very cool. Anyway, these are some of the things that you can use in order to make that amp sim sound even more realistic. Even if you use a few of them, I'm sure you're going to like the result because it really will smooth things out. Lidge Shaw is the host of the great podcast called Recording Studio Rockstars. And he's also the owner of the Toy Box Studio in Nashville, where he's been making records for the last 25 years. The studio is in his house, and recently he received a cease and desist order from the city for violating a zoning ordinance stating that he has a home business that requires customers to come to his house. Since that time, other Nashville studios and home businesses have also received the same letter from the codes department. Lidge has filed a lawsuit against the city for depriving him of his ability to earn a living, and he's here to tell us all about it. I spoke with him via Skype from a studio in East Nashville. Let's just go back to the beginning. Tell me your background and then how you got into the studio business and just everything that kind of leads up to what's going on today. Yeah, totally. Well, first off, Bobby, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're a real inspiration to me and a mentor for a lot of people in, in recording. So it's quite an honor to be here just chatting with you on your show. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, thanks. So so I've been making records for 25 plus years. Um, I came down from Boston to Nashville way back in 90, 1991. In fact, the the milestone for me was I was driving around in my beat up Ford Escort station wagon that I had spray painted in entirely silver as a you know 23 year old kid and and the local college radio station was breaking Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirit for the first time, which was really, you know, that just sort of changed everything mm, at yeah. that time. And I came down here because I wanted to, um, I had I had gone to college already um, to learn how to be an architect, thinking that that was something that I should do. And it was through that experience and playing in bands that I realized that music was really where my heart was and what I loved doing. And so I had a chance to, uh, I decided that I wanted to go look for recording schools, and I ended up finding Middle Tennessee State University. Came down to Nashville, and uh, at the time, it was pretty remarkable. If you came and lived here and you were an in-state resident, you or a resident, you could get full-time tuition at this college for eight hundred dollars a semester. Wow! <laughs> so I. So, you know, and they just built a multi-million dollar recording facility with with an SSL studio and an Otari Series 54 studio and, you know, MIDI labs and all this stuff. So I came down here to learn all this stuff that I really knew nothing about other than the fact that I love doing music. And um, it was just, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. Took me a couple of years of doing that. And then I moved to Nashville from there because the school is just south of Nashville. And I kind of planted my feet here. At first, I thought I was going to go back to the city I knew, which was St. Louis, where I'd been in a band. And I was like, I want to go play with my friends. And uh, and then I realized Nashville was actually a great place to be yeah. building a career in recording. And I found a studio called Alex the Great um, and found a couple of mentors, Robin Eaton and Brad Jones there. And these guys really took me under my wing. And they were making music that was really appealed to me. It was outside of the kind of commercial country realm, which was not a genre I moved here for. I've learned to really appreciate a lot of that, but it wasn't why I came. Um, and I found people who were really doing stuff kind of, you know, the sort of underdog indie rock stuff. Uh, they were producing Jill Sobule, um, her record uh, that had I Kissed a Girl. I don't know if you remember that single yeah. from yeah. the early 90s. 
Um, they were doing that one at the studio that I interned at, which was Woodland Studios here in East Nashville under Bob Solomon, who owned it there. Uh, and that was a beautiful studio as well. In fact, I'll share that story. When I was interning there, um, one of the first records that came through was Amy Lou Harris' Wrecking Ball, yeah, which was produced by Daniel Lenoir. And so Daniel came down to the studio and, and he and his assistant you know, like transformed this place with tapestries and incense. And Daniel was walking around, you know, like smudging the studio or something and chewing on raw ginseng. <laughs> and he handed, handed me, he ripped off a strip of it and handed it to me. And um, it was pretty cool, you know, totally hit it off with him. And, and he was just a really interesting guy and, and kind of inspiring. And during the making of that record, in fact, there was kind of a ridiculous anecdote where I was answering the phones at the front of the studio while Amy Lou Harris was making this, you know, groundbreaking record in the, in the big studio. And she had brought her oversized black poodle to the studio. And it was, this was her precious dog. And the story, you know, the message to everybody was like, this is, you know, I forgot what the poodle's name was at this, at this point, but um, we'll call it Fifi for now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is Fifi and, uh, you know, everybody make sure Fifi doesn't get out, you know, keep an eye on her, make sure she's cool in the studio. We'll be in here making a record. And this was a, a, a converted, the studio was a converted movie theater. So these big double doors that would pry open in the front of the theater and then they'd back up a cartage truck, put a ramp out and they'd load stuff in and out. So of course the doors are wide open and this cartage truck is there and it's just, it's wide open for a long period of time. And at one point, the dog just invariably just slips right out through the crack and escapes. I'm like, oh crap! And I gotta jump up as the intern and go sprinting after the dog. And and uh, Fifi ran all the way across the uh, you know the large parking lot, and then all the way across the mo- busiest road in East Nashville through mid- midday traffic. And I'm sprinting after this dog, and then ran off into a neighborhood that was kind of sketchy. And I could I finally got Fifi by um, tackling her when she was, you know, a, a loving tackle, but she was uh, pooping in somebody's yard <laughs> with like, you know, over, overgrown, uncut grass. And I, and I was able to walk her back and kind of save the session. And it was one of those moments that, you know, it's the glory that I'll never get for having <laughs> saved Wrecking Ball for Emmylou Harris and Daniel, Daniel Lenoir. But that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> I know Emmy a little bit. I doubt that she remembers me. Brian Hearn, her then-husband, owned the Enactron truck out here and, and a studio as well. And I worked at the studio a little bit as a client. Then I was on the softball team. Oh, cool. Yeah, and it was a studio softball, entertainment softball team. And Emmy would always come to the games. But she had a way of blending in that if you didn't know it was Emmy, you didn't know it was her. She could really just blend in with the best of them. So... Until she spoke to you and her her lilting vibrato. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. Was that back at a time when engineering records was like sort of a health a healthy regimen, and you guys would go uh, you know start softball teams around it at the same time? I don't know that it was ever healthy, but the fact of the matter is there was this entertainment league that was kind of fun. That being said, I do remember the time where we played. Uh, we weren't a good team, but we played the ABC team, ABC Television team. And they had ringers, and one of the ringers was Tom, <laughs> Tommy Davis, who won a batting championship with the Los Angeles Dodgers. And it was the typical thing where he was up ten times and he hit nine home runs. 
that's hilarious yeah but they probably also had like union regulations so it was like oh don't touch that yeah you can't touch you can't pick up that bat you just gotta do it (laughs) so anyway how did toy box studio come about well you know the first thing i did so i started out with this studio alex the great with my mentors and then i i found a band that i brought in there and i realized that i really wanted to sort of break out and and produce music and not just sort of push buttons and stuff and so I ended up kind of venturing off with these guys um, through a few different bands and many studios traveling around the country and working in different places and doing, you know, kind of going through the whole thing of starting out and doing a spec deal and then they get a record deal. And and that was really like a decade of my career right there, um, wrapped up through multiple bands and, and major label signings and, you know, kind of playing that big swimming in the big pond for mm-hmm. a while, you know? Yeah. And, and then I started, started um in between records i came home and started a family and uh had my daughter who's now 12 um and it was that transition that i tried to go make one more record and i found myself in los angeles for you know what was supposed to be three months and became a year uh Uh, you probably heard that story before yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) and my daughter was one years old and she was starting to you know i'm I'm like i can't do this anymore i've got to I've got to go home. So at the same time, I had been hosting my home studio inside my house, but I had this three-car garage out back. And I had, you know, a long-term vision was like, one day I'll put the studio in the garage. And so that became the time to do it. And it was a, oops, sorry. And it was a bit of a transition um, to get the studio kind of put together and then leave this record. But that was essentially it for me, was sort of like leaving that, the, the, major label hustle and bustle ward and saying, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to really make my home studio happen. I'm going to work. I didn't know who I was going to work with, but I was happy to work with local and independent musicians. And I've actually really enjoyed that. Um, and that, that was about 2007 when I opened the doors. And so it's been another decade of just working out of my home studio. And it's, I'd say it's by far my favorite chapter of making records too. Mm. You know, I've, it's remarkable when you make that transition from the time in your career where you decide that being in the studio is, you know, from the time you wake up till the time you go to sleep seven days a week versus the time where I finally said, you know what, I'm going to try and, you know, work a focused eight hours and take weekends off and spend them with my daughter. And I actually made a lot more music <laughs> and a yeah. lot more meaningful music in that, in that chapter, you know, this most recent one. I've had two instances like that in my career one was when I decided to stop touring because uh, yeah. I spent a lot of my years as a musician and it was one of the happiest days of my life in retrospect because this weight came off of my shoulder that I had to make money as a musician and now I, I was free to do it in any other way. So then, you know, I started to spend all sorts of time in the studio and then there came another time where it was like, boy, I'm really tired of spending, <laughs> you know, 14, 15 hours every day yeah. in the studio. Maybe there's something else to do. And it was almost kind of by accident that I get into some other things. But yeah, you know, I think you have to be open to those transitions. And, and if you follow them, you're much better off. And certainly it's happened with you. Yeah, well, and then, you know, as you probably discovered, it's ironic that when we begin to put limitations on boundaries on what it means to have a work schedule, that our work, uh, we, we can become more prolific and we can become more effective yeah. through that process. Even though you might be faced with the limitation where you're thinking, how in the world am I ever going to 
get anything done if I can only work this many hours in these many days or whatever, you know. Do you know Billy Decker? I don't, but his name keeps coming up and I need to know him. That's become evident to me in the past few weeks. Yeah, I had him on the podcast a few episodes back because I kept on hearing about this method that that he has. It's kind of like the Chris Lord Algae method where he has a template and no matter what kind of music, it works through his template and therefore his mixes can be two and three hours long. But we got to talking and it was a similar thing. He said, you know, I just didn't want to spend all that time in the studio. So I had to find a way to make it more efficient so I could be home at five or six o'clock at night to spend with my family. And and that was the impetus behind him doing that. And gee, he's had a bunch of number ones. So it certainly works. Nobody complains, you know, what your methods are as long as they work. Yeah. And I think that those methods, I think they're really like mission critical for all of us. Uh, but I think it's okay to arrive at them through experience, empirical experience too. We do spend all day in the studio and we kind of overdo it. I mean, that's what your twenties are for. (laughs) You know what I mean? How true. How true. Well, okay. So, Hey Bobby, uh, shout out to you as a musician too. I'm looking at the back of your video and I'm going to make a call here. I think that's a, I'm just seeing the headstocks, but is that a Duosonic, a Mosrite and a P bass? No, no. Well, it's a P bass. Yes. I wish it was a Mosrite. In fact, what it is is a first act guitar, but it's a <laughs> awesome. It's a slash model that has an nice overdrive built into on their it. Part. Yeah, I mean, we can talk a lot about that. It's kind of special, but anyway, awesome. Let's come back and talk about what's going on with the studio now, because you're you're facing a, an interesting challenge that many people have faced here in Los Angeles years ago, but the situation's somewhat different. You know, I did some research this morning and I find that there are things kind of bubbling under today in Los Angeles that are much the same as what happened what's happening with you wow. in Nashville. So, so tell us what you're going through. Uh, well, first off, I'll preface it by saying I haven't uh, looked yet to see if the same stuff's happening in Los Angeles now that's happening in Nashville. But what is happening in Nashville, uh, it, you know, what started for me, as I described, I did back in 2005 what I had seen everybody else do, which was create a home studio. You know, even the top commercial studio owners here in Nashville have either all owned or still own or have worked in and made important, meaningful records in home studios. It's just what it's what happens in Nashville. You know, it's what people do and have done for decades and decades. So I did that and I was working happily out of my home studio for 10 years. Now, I always understood that it was a home studio, so I had to act like a home. You know, it was sort of a given. Um, it's not a, sto- a walk-up storefront or anything like that. Uh, but in 2015, I walked up to my mailbox after mixing a, a song for a really thrilled local musician, and um, and I opened it up, and there was a letter from Nashville City Codes saying cease and desist being the toy box studio in a residential uh, zoned property. So basically, they came along and gave me a slap down and said, you know, you're operating as a commercial studio. You can't do that because of you're in a residence. And that was, it was through that process and understanding it after that, that I learned that um, Nashville has a restriction that just says all home businesses, you can work from home, but you can't see a customer or a client. You can't have somebody come over to your house. And obviously if we lit, you know, what, what I do is, um, you know, here in Nashville, Nashville is one of the few places where 
top professional musicians still get together and make music face to face in front of microphones. And that's what I wanted to be able to do for my home studio. But it's pretty limiting. You can't really do that if you can't have somebody come over to your home studio. Yeah. So, so that's what happened to me. And then, um, you know, the, the, the sort of condensed version of the past couple of years since then is that I spoke to friends, I spoke to family, I spoke to, um, local lawyer. And then I, I anonymously did an interview in the Nashville, Tennessee in the newspaper. And shortly after that, two pro bono public advocacy law firms that specialize in property rights and, um, and economic liberties reached out to me and, and both said, you know, what's, what you're going through is exactly the kind of thing that is our mission to help people with. And so this is the Institute for Justice in the Beacon Center, which is right out of Nashville here. And so that started a process where I said, all right, you know, let's, let's all work together on this issue. And I started talking to other home studios owners here in Nashville. And I, and I started actually hosting some meetups to get a you know, just kind of take a, a, the temperature of the local community and, and find out whether anybody else felt like this was an important issue for them as well. And everybody unanimously said, yeah, we completely are, are think that this doesn't make any sense at all, that we shouldn't be allowed to make music from our homes. So last year, we found that there was an opportunity for me to first attempt to do a, an SP rezoning of my property, where we actually go through a long legal process with the Metro Council and just simply try and rezone it so that it's a mixed use specifically as a residence and a home studio, you know, with, with all the limitations of a residence. So I would have been, if that had worked, I would have been allowed to work out of my home studio with, with clients coming over, but I still would have had to look, act, smell, and sound just like a house. You know, you can't, you can't disrupt the neighborhood in any way and you have to be good for, good for your neighbors. And so I went around and I canvassed the entire neighborhood, um, spoke to all my neighbors. Everybody was totally in support. Um, you know, we had 40 signatures on a petition, um, seven handwritten letters from neighbors to the Metro Council, uh, over 50 emails sent in to every single Metro Council member. And then when we had a public hearing, you know, 15 of the neighbors around me came out to the hearing to show their support and, you know, paid for parking through rush hour traffic to do this. Wow. And despite all this, this support, the Metro council still said, no, I'm sorry, we're not going to, they voted it down. It wasn't, it wasn't a landslide vote. It was like 20 against 14, four. Um, but it kind of got wrapped up in the issues around the Airbnb discussion and um, short-term rentals that was going on in Nashville. So I feel like it got a little bit caught up in, in some con confused with some other discussions going on. Um, but as a result of that, we decided that we were going to take it to the next step, which was filing a lawsuit against the city of Nashville in defense of my constitutional right to be able to make a living from my home. So in December, we've very publicly filed a lawsuit uh, against Nashville and the city for shutting down my studio and my ability to just make an honest living for my home and support my family. Is the studio up and working in the meantime? Oh yeah, everything works just great. I mean, you know, I've got vintage some vintage gear in here, so I'm like anybody, I'm dealing with a few knobs that need to be fixed here and there. <laughs> I mean, you're still using the studio then, right? You didn't shut it down, did you? Well, I mean, I it's it's my home studio. Um, I am 
allowed to be in my home studio and make music from it. I'm I'm no more legally allowed to or disallowed to make a, a commercial record than anybody else in Nashville. But what happened was, uh, you know, the discussion that I had with Codes back when they shut me down, when they sent the cease and desist, you know, she left a message. We, we talked on the phone and at first there was a, you know, she asked me, she said, are you ready to schedule an inspection? And I was like, well, what do you mean an inspection? Uh, she said, well, we walk through and we confirm that you've removed all recording equipment from the premises. And I was like, oh, oh. holy crap, what are you talking about? Yeah. This is my home and my, my home studio. You know, this is what I, what I do. And so she, she called back later and left a message and said, all right, I checked with the supervisor and, and you don't have to remove your equipment, but if we get another complaint about you recording anybody other than yourself, and that includes podcasting, she randomly threw that in there. I don't even think she knew what podcasting was. We will immediately take you to court and file a warrant. Wow. So that was the, that was the final lingering threat from the city. And um, as you can imagine, that scared the crap out of me. And that started the process of, you know, talking to people and looking for advice and trying to figure out what to do. Um, and then, you know, the, of course, two years of that has been totally devastating for me and had, has made it really hard to survive. Um, but I guess, fortunately, as somebody, an independent, um, self-employed producer, engineer, musician, you know, long ago, we learned to just do what we've always done, which is pick up every little piece and figure out how to survive and, you know, make do with what you got and, and just try and survive. Cause I, I have to feed my, my family and, take care of my daughter and have a, a roof over our heads. Sure. So that's really the answer to it is, you know, I, I'm not allowed to or disallowed to any more or less than anybody else in Nashville. And and I'm doing everything I can to just survive. Okay. So how did this come to pass in the first place? Did you have a neighbor that complained? So Nashville Metro Codes has a website and they have a form on there and anybody can anonymously go fill out the form and then Codes has to follow through and and look at it. Um, so they do it in such a way that I don't have any idea who the accuser was or who filed the complaint. They won't tell me. They've even told my legal team that they may not, they don't necessarily even know who filed the complaint. Um, I sort of believe that they must know who filed it. But in other words, it's pure speculation. We don't know if it was a neighbor. We don't know if it was some people speculate that it's competition. Um, there was speculation that it could have been developers who are who are flipping houses in the neighborhood and just uh you know trying to shake things up or get longer residents to move out uh it's all speculation you know i just don't know so i can't really offer anything other than what the discussion has been around it uh, but i have never had a complaint from a neighbor and i've been making records i mean i've lived here for almost 20 years and been making records out of my house the whole time well, and it sounds like you have a tremendous amount of support from your neighbors. You think that would mean something? Yeah, in fact, when I was thinking it through, I did the math in my head and I realized that I had made records with something like 12 to 15 of my immediate neighborhood neighbors in the neighborhood <laughs> over the years. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's a pretty remarkable thing when you live in a place where you can have a, a recording session and you could call up somebody who plays pedal steel and they can literally walk over. Well, they might not carry their pedal steel over, but you know, somebody yeah. with a guitar case can walk over to the studio. You can make music together. You can walk over to the local sandwich place for lunch and then walk home at the end of the day. 
to me, that's the definition of pretty good neighborhood, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think that's sort of an ideal for, for where we should be headed. Okay. So what happened in Los Angeles, which is not the same, but yet there are similarities in the early 1990s when there was a 24 track studio on every block. I remember that there was a guide that you could pick up and I remember coming into town and there were 228 commercial studios in Los Angeles that were in this guide. Like Map of the Stars. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, what happened was a producer put an SSL in his house and this was like the first instance of that happening, at least in Los Angeles. And he called the studio Secret Sound, which would have been perfectly fine He was doing sessions and big sessions as well, but nobody complained. But what happened was he got greedy and he started to advertise. When the going rate here was $1,600 a day, he was advertising for $800 a day or, you know, it was big, big difference, which outraged all of the studio owners. So the studio owners got together and they petitioned the city council. In fact, it was moving forward and moving forward And it was just about the time when the ADAT craze started. We had ADATs and DA88s, and all of a sudden it exploded where everybody suddenly could record at home. And it changed the complexion of that whole thing. So what ended up happening was that it kind of petered out. But it was driven not by the city. The city was reacting to the commercial studio owners who said, hey, you know, we're being undercut by a lot here. It's hard to make a living. It's really expensive real estate, the whole thing. Then what started to happen was the city got a little tough, but they got tough more than anything on parking and noise. And I think that's the one thing that if you have a home business of any kind, if you can avoid getting on the wrong side of your neighbors on both of those issues, then you're good. Nobody cares. Yeah. But if you take up too much parking space or if there's noise late at night, then that's usually you're asking for trouble. So that's where some home studios did run into trouble and they were eventually closed. Not many, but a few. Yeah. And I I think at the essence of that is just being a good neighbor. Yeah. Now we flash forward. This was in the nineties. Now we flash forward to today where Again, it's starting to happen where everybody has a studio, but we're having those two issues. Again, I haven't heard this so much. I was doing some research online to see what would happen, and there's been some articles lately where neighbors have been complaining. Well, you know, all of a sudden there's no parking, noisy, all that stuff. So this is coming back around again. That being said, at AES, I went to dinner. I was with Jack Douglas, the famous producer for Aerosmith and Uh John Lennon and all. And, And Jack was telling me he just finished a Joe Perry record. And he finished it. Oh, who's the star of Pirates of the Caribbean? Johnny Depp. um, Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp, yeah. He finished it in Johnny Depp's house. Now, Johnny Depp apparently bought five houses on a cul-de-sac and made one into a complete studio. That's great. That's cool. I mean, he can afford it, obviously. But here we go where now, if you're going to take it to its extreme, (laughs) that's what it is, you know, where you have a house that's a studio in a residential area. So we'll see how these things shake out here in Los Angeles, but I have a feeling that, you know, you're kind of on the cutting edge, the unfortunate cutting edge there when what's happening with you in Nashville. Well, I'm certainly in a unique and privileged position. So I I like to look at it from a really positive perspective. Obviously it was unfortunate to have this happen to me, but um, once it happened, it happened. So, and that now I'm in this really privileged and, and honored position 
to have this this incredible legal team and a support network and be in a position where I can do something about it and I can step forward and make a statement. And the amount of support that I've gotten from the local music community and music community around the world, in fact, musicians, engineers, producers, studio owners, even commercial studio owners has been totally overwhelming. And so it's become very clear to me that I'm representing an issue that is important to everybody and not everybody is in a position to be able to do something about it. I think it's incredibly important to the local musicians because if you're a local independent musician, where else are you going to affordably make a record other than through a home studio? You know, uh, there's obviously a place, well, I think, I don't know if it's obvious to everybody, but there is certainly a place for um, both the independent home studio and the commercial facility, you know, a big place like Blackbird, for example, over in Berry Hill, which is a world-class studio and the perfect place to make world-class records. Um, but for an independent artist, you don't start out being able to uh, create your music on that very top level, that top tier. You start out needing to be able to develop and grow and, you know, collaborate with other people. And, you know, it makes sense. That, that the home studio community here in Nashville, which there are, I'm sure there are thousands of home studios across Nashville, that that is um, the lifeblood of the music scene here. That's where the music is born and that's where it, it percolates up through the entire um, industry. Let me pose a dilemma that I see. If I had a studio in Nashville, I would definitely support your cause. If I had a home studio, because obviously I would think, I don't want this to happen to me. On the other hand, I don't know that I want to broadcast it by letting my support be too public because yeah. I don't want to raise my hand so zoning suddenly comes after me because they've missed me all this time. So have you seen any of that? Yeah, so I'm glad you, you brought that up because that's definitely uh, at the core of one of the challenges of this is because when you're not when you don't feel like the the radar is on you or you're on the radar in that way, you don't want to stick your neck out and get it chopped off. And and that's why I feel like I'm in a privileged position because my neck's already out there and I've got, um, you know, this great support team that I can feel kind of safe moving forward and making this big, this big challenge and trying to defend my right to be able to do this. And therefore everybody, everybody's rights to be able to do this in Nashville as well. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. The other thing I was going to say is that I'm not the only one. And so I think when you have the perspective that says, I don't necessarily want to stick my neck out there because I don't want it to happen to me, that's something the the uh, converse of that is to, is suggesting that if I don't do anything, nothing will happen to me. Mm. But I just received two phone calls from two other uh, individual home studio owners just in the past couple of weeks, just before for coming out to winter name where they just got shut down. And then I know that, um, there ha have been, I heard, you know, through somebody else, through somebody else that there are two other studios that also had problems. So it is happening and it's not isolated. And I think that the important thing is to get in front of the issue and find a way to change it and make it right so that people can start making an honest living from their homes because, I know that that it's important to me and everybody else I know. Like all my friends, all my community are affected by this. 
But I think you're right when you say that you're wrapped up with the Airbnb issue as well. And I'm not taking sides here, but I'm just I'm not even playing devil's advocate. I'm just looking at both sides. So if you're an official, zoning official, or, or you're on the city council, and you have this problem of Airbnb, which, you know, it's a dilemma for everybody. You're looking at it, okay, so what works and what doesn't? And you're, yeah, and let's, let's be cautious yeah. when we call it that. So Airbnb is not, by definition, a problem. There is an element of it that is, and there's an element of that is a great solution and a real benefit for the community here. Well, again, the problem is the people who take advantage of that situation and right. commercialize that. I think that's where people are, have a problem. But on the other hand, what's happening with you is it's a similar situation in that if you let one go, do you let the other Again, it's not even fair to say people take advantage of it and they commercialize it. There's there's actually absolutely nothing wrong with commercializing and there's nothing wrong with taking advantage of situations. It's when people are abusive and the presence of something that is functioning as a resident slash business starts to disrupt the neighborhood. That's the problem. Yeah, That's what really needs to be addressed. And I think that's where the discussion needs to lie. So I think it's um, a misuse of um, of the legal system to just simply say, I'm sorry, we're wiping out, we're just blanket wiping out an entire industry such as home, home recording studios, because we really, it's too difficult for us to figure out the solution to the real problems, which is some people are, you know, some people are assholes. (laughs) So you mentioned podcasts before, and you have a really good one recording studio rock stars but I guess you're like me, though. You don't have too many in-the-studio guests. It's mostly via Skype. Is that not true? Yeah, and I, I quite honestly, I think that the codes inspector had no idea what she was even talking about when she when she threw that in there. They really, like, the, the things that got used as examples to sort of cite me as, as having infractions um, boiled down to this. You know, I was operating my home studio, doing things here, um, the way that I put myself on the radar was by using the internet. Imagine that, you know, doing yeah. the things that we know we're supposed to be doing these days. It's like, hey, if you want to, if you want to thrive and succeed with whatever you're doing, you better have a, a presence on social media. You better have a website. Well, I did all those things. In fact, I started a YouTube channel called Stereo Sessions, and I invited local bands to come over, and we would have, um, uh, we would actually, I'll, I'll be describe it completely. So we would have a, on a Monday night, I would invite bands to come over. I've got plenty of parking right here in my, my driveway. Um, we would have six bands come in and perform together and each band would play three songs and I would mix it live on my console and the, um, and we would take iPhones and we would videotape each other while we're performing. So if you watch a video, you see, you clearly see somebody with an iPhone getting in somebody's face and it was really cool, you know, and it really, what we did is we took advantage of this, again, a good taking advantage. We took advantage of an available technology that was low budget and accessible to us as independent musicians and a home studio. And we said, we're going to make cool, fun content out of this. And the result is local artists are going to have videos of them performing in a situation which allows them to use that to book book live gigs because now they can show off this great content, promote themselves. And, you know, it was just us hanging out with each other and making music together. And I did that. Um, 
and and I would do that in you know so therefore in in one night I could actually produce eighteen videos worth of content and then then publish it on YouTube um, every we were doing two videos a week for a year so that was a really cool fun way to to sort of think outside the box and spin up um, my presence as a home studio using the internet now as long as the you know the things we're doing are okay not disruptive of the neighborhood and 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 positive for the community and everything well then you certainly can't say that something that's happening on the internet is somehow disruptive for the neighborhood i don't think um you know it's like my house still looks like a house if i post a youtube video and the codes inspector one of the things that she said is she made me shut down my youtube channel so which is kind of an infringement of my my wow. right to free speech wow i'll say yeah so she she made me shut down my YouTube channel. Um, I had to promise not to do that anymore. In fact, when I was talking to her, she said, I, I said, I've got that closed down. She said, oh, I don't believe you. I see that you had so-and-so in there at 2.46 a.m. just last night. And I'm like, no, ma'am, that was because I had scheduled the video to be released at that time last night. And that's the way the internet works, you know? <laughs> wow. And, um, and so then she saw that on my website, I, I had my rates on there. And so I had to take that down. Um, and I had a video on my landing page that welcomed people to come make a record with me. And she said, well, you got to take that down cause that's inviting customers over. And, um, wow. and also, uh, the, the, you know, I mentioned podcasting on there, so she just threw that in with the rest of it. So the point is that the very thing that does no harm to the neighborhood, which was use the internet effectively was also the very thing that was cited as all the infractions of me somehow, you know, harming this this neighborhood as a residence. Wow. Well, it's going to be an interesting court case, <laughs> I see, the interesting court battle if if it goes that far and hopefully it will be worked out before it goes that far. Uh, you know, I, I certainly hope for a solution for myself, but really my motivation for doing all this is... Um, is to, you know, a big part of my motivation is to just sol solve this for the community. Yeah, yeah. So I hope that it becomes something, I hope the result is that that the Metro Council figures out a way to allow people to just do this thing that is, it is Nashville. I mean, everybody knows we've, that, that home studios already work in Music City. So, yeah. you know, I'm just fighting for my right to record. Well, good luck with that. Certainly something that... <laughs> Defies imagination in this day and age, but there you go. Last question, Lidge, since you've been in business for yourself with your studio and as uh, an independent engineer and producer, what's the best piece of business advice that maybe someone imparted to you or you learned along the way? Well, there's two, two answers to that. I think one of the best business advice that I learned along the way is... Um, I've certainly learned a lot that people have shared with me, but there's so many things. And in, in fact, actually, I'll share this. I just discovered, uh, you know who Napoleon Hill is, who who wrote sure. Think and Grow Rich and yeah. many other books. Um, and he's sort of a, a father figure of this this whole kind of um, business coaching that has exploded across the internet and through books and, and everywhere. Uh, I just discovered that he did an original series, TV series in the 1950s in black and white, and that's on Netflix right now. Hmm. So you can go watch all those. Anybody who's listening, I, I highly recommend that. And it's just full of all these really core tenets for 
um, what you need to know to succeed in what you want to do in life. Um, so there's, I won't reshare everything he said, but I will advise that you go check that out. But I would say for myself, one of the things that I learned was um, to just believe in myself. So it was it's essentially to to come to the realization that everything that I've ever done that has done well has been something where I've really acknowledged who I am and let myself come through and be as honest uh, as honestly me as possible. Hmm. I think it was easy at the beginning of everything I did to be enthusiastic about the things I loved, but to quickly kind of keep them close to the chest and assume that what everybody else was doing was probably a little more important and I should probably just do that, you know? Yeah. So I th- I think I think believing in in yourself um, is is it a core thing that you have to do? And then I think when you begin to do that, I think a real business uh, lesson is one that says, if you adopt a strategy that says, I am going to make it my goal to help everybody around me as absolutely much as I can and help them achieve whatever their goals are, while at the same time um, just making myself open to receiving that I think that's a great way to build your business model. Sure. So in is. other words, instead of feeling like, you know, you have to go out and get the money, it's just just go out and give, but make sure you you are making yourself open to receiving opportunity and receiving income and receiving um, reciprocation for all the giving that you do. Great advice. Good place to end, I think. Thanks, good, man. Good luck with everything. And thanks for your compliments about the podcast, too. Uh, for your listeners, go listen to episode 10 of Recording Studio Rockstars and you'll hear Bobby Osinski on there himself. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah you're, you're one of my first guests. Thank you so much for doing that. Well, thank you for asking. I appreciate it. To find out more about Lidge, you can go to The Toy Box Studio. That's all one word, thetoyboxstudio.com. You can also find out about his podcast at recordingstudiorockstars.com. And again, that's all one word, recordingstudiorockstars.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com, select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google play at bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts this is bobby osinski i will see you next time